John chapter 15. We're kind of eking our way through this, <laughs> but, but there's just so much here. I just, I, I, I thought, as I started preparing for this week, I thought maybe I can just polish off the rest of the chapter. And I got to studying and looking, and pretty soon I'm going, not a chance, no. <laughs> so we're going to squeeze off a few more verses this morning. However, I just wanted just to come up to speed. Last week we looked at what it is to abide in the vine. We looked at the metaphor that Jesus gave to his men. This is, remember, this is the final five hours of his public ministry. Well, actually, it wasn't, this is his private ministry to his guys, but the final five hours of his ministry on earth, his earthly ministry, and, and he's closing it off with some time set aside by himself with his guys to give final instruction. Five hours, five chapters, and we've looked at that. I mean, he spent three and a half years, and we see the culmination of that with these instructions of what he's about to go through when he goes to the cross and then subsequently resurrects, but also what his men were about to go through. Remember, he's already prophesied that Peter would deny him. Now, and he's also talked about Judas rejecting him, and there is a difference between rejection and denial. Uh, not going to belabor that again, but it, there is a huge difference. I mean, Judas, the son of perdition, said, that's it. I, I'm, I'm not in. And Peter had some moments of weakness prior to the giving of the Holy Spirit. I, I like to point that out because you look at Peter's life there, you know, warming his hands at the enemy's fire and, and all. And then you look out at First and Second Peter and you look, at, I, I am in awe of the spiritual maturity that that man gained as the years went by. So uh, I could rabbit trail. I, I'm not even five minutes in and I want a rabbit trail. But the point is, so we're, we're looking at this last five hours and Jesus has been giving these guys pertinent instruction. We're halfway through that time here in the middle of John 15. Uh, he's left the upper room. Uh, people speculate on where he went. I, I think he's on the roof, but that's Fine, that's just my ideas about it. But more importantly than that, than that is, is what he has to say to these people. And as he's going here, he's talking about fruit. He, he gives this metaphor, I am the vine, my father is the vine dresser, and you're the branches. And, and it's my will that you go forward from here and that you uh, bring forth much fruit. Well, how does that happen? How do you bring forth fruit as a Christian? How does it apply to me, to you? It simply applies through abiding in the vine. Remember, we talked about what does abiding mean? It means my life is intertwined with his. That means that as I abide in him, as I simply show up and allow him to do the work, really pretty simple, Profa profoundly so simple that we can miss it, folks. If you choose not to abide, not to allow your life to be just entwined into his, then you're going to sort of be trying to do things on your own. And there's no power in that. You'll fall flat, I guarantee it. And yet as we allow him to conduct his life through us, as we abide in him, then his sustenance, his uh, power comes to our lives through the Holy Spirit. And so we don't have that. We can't produce fruit. It's impossible to pr produce fruit if we're disconnected. He talked about two kinds of people. He said there are the, the people there that are fruitless, they're cut away, cast into the fire, done. And that's a very serious thing. And I'm not going to try to lighten that. It's God's word. 
But he says then there's also the fruitful branch that he prunes that it brings forth more fruit, better fruit, more abundant fruit. And that's what he wants to do with his church, the called out ones. This is a tent for the temple. We are the temple of God. And as the temple of God, the only reason we can make that claim, that we have the right to make that claim, is because we're abiding in him. And his life is flowing to us. And so what we're going to look at this morning is verses 11 through 17. We're going to read them together as we start off, and then I'm going to go back as we've been doing. I'm find, finding that these things, there is so much packed into these verses that it's beneficial to us to go through them, to read the whole passage, and then come back and start tagging the bases, because uh, we, we need to understand, uh, you guys know how I feel about it, we need to understand the context of this stuff. And there's some great context that can only be found in the middle of this passage that really kind of determines the shape of the whole passage. So uh, reading in verses 11 through 17, uh, verse 11, these things I've spoken to you about abiding and about fruit bearing, uh, that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You're my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all things that I heard from my father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. These things I command you, that you love one another. The central words of this passage, uh, really, I see them in verse 16. That's what we're going to talk about. You notice that the title of this message is Chosen. Uh, there's a lot to be said about that, what it is to be chosen of God. Uh, there's a lot of speculation. A lot of people divide on, on some of these things. We're going to talk about that some uh, and give what I believe the Bible gives is the balance to those things. Uh, but it, it's, it's about what Jesus has to say about his people, not choosing him, but he chose them. And it's a beautiful thing when you really understand what's going on here. We're going to look at seven things that Jesus intends in this passage that are directed towards us in his choosing us. Uh, I look at, okay, I'm going to take a minute and go through some of the division that's come about in the body of Christ over these things, because there's a major division between people that say, well, we're the elect, and that it's an unconditional election, that, that God chose us, that we have no hand in the matter at all. And I just don't see that as being put forth in God's word. There are many, many places that talk about just the opposite. However, there are places that clearly teach, as Jesus himself is saying and asserting here, that he chose us. And so how do you reconcile those? And, and, and I want to look at some passages here that will help us. Uh, starting off with a, a dictionary definition of the word chosen. Uh, this is from Webster's Dictionary. It says, picked to be shown favor or given special privilege. And I would submit to you that as Christians, we are given both through being chosen of God. 
uh, as far as uh, I'm going to I'm going to kind of bounce back and forth on chosen and then whosoever because those are sort of the the bywords of the two uh, sides of the division that exists over this. But I, I think that they beautifully, again, they beautifully link together. Uh, there's really no debate. This has been a settled issue in my heart for a long time. I determined as a young Christian, I didn't want to know about Calvinism. I didn't want to know about Arminianism. Those are the two guys in the reforming in, 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 during the Reformation that popped up. Uh, Calvin saying, you know, that God only saves the elect and that he only gives grace to those that he's pre-appointed for grace and that you're actually without hope and all that. Arminius saying it's only by free will, only through your choice that God really has little to do with the equation. And I could, I, I could go and spend the rest of our time just talking about that. The bottom line is, is that I believe that the Bible teaches that both are taught and both are true. And I'm not going to get into the weeds on the, the divine election. I, I don't believe that. But I mean, free will and predestiny or election are both principles that the Bible puts forth, and they're both true. The thing is, is if you try to get dogmatic about it, and that's what it results in, if you decide you're going to just stick on one and ignore the other, you end up in religious dogma. And what happens is we end up dividing over these things because we, we take a stand that one can't be true without the other. And I would submit to you that's absolutely false. They both exist and they both work, but only in light of understanding the other side. So both are taught, both are true. It's not one or the other, because if you end up, if you do that, you're going to end up out in the weeds doctrinally, for one thing, because you have to blow off a number of passages of scripture in order to do that. So, when I look at the chosen aspect, I look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, where Paul the Apostle says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. I want to point something out in this. God, and I want to say this right, because I don't want an empty building five minutes after I say it. God did not choose you. Jesus did not choose you because you're all that more wonderful and all that. I know, what a shame, huh? He didn't choose us based on our merit. He didn't choose us based on who we are. It says here that he chose us according to who he is. It's a function of his grace. He is a God of grace. I was talking to somebody yesterday, I think it was Paul, he was talking about, um, uh, I, I don't remember the guy's name and Paul's up with the kids, but it's not important. He says, though you're walking down a hallway and you look at a door, and over the door it says, whosoever will come. And only through walking through that door, you turn around and you look at the door on the other side, and it says elect, or it says predestined. It's always by faith that we come to him. He has not given us up to such total depravity that we can't understand what happens in the spiritual realm as he tugs on our heart because we know that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is with, in, and upon. Jesus told these guys 
in this passage here in John, the Holy Spirit is with you. He shall be in you. But that with is where he is wooing us and speaking to us and drawing us and showing us our lack, showing us our need, showing us the beauty of the gospel. Even though we do have what the Bible calls a reprobate mind, he opens our hearts. I remember this very, very clearly in my life. When I started reading the Bible, I had no idea what a relationship with Christ was, but he began to quicken my heart. And he began to say, this is true. There, this is the satisfaction of all that you're yearning for, John. Please continue. And there was this, that wooing, that, that quickening in my heart. That was him. So I can't lock the door on that and say, well, it's only though that I was elect and everybody else is not elect. They're just headed for hell because grace only goes to the elect. No, grace is there for everybody. Whosoever, Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. The gospel is offered to humanity. Jesus didn't go to the cross for the elect. He went to the cross for whosoever would come. Chosen, and this has to do with being a family, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, he says, but you're a chosen generation. That word generation could be translated family. It is translated family in other places in the New Testament. You're a chosen family, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now are the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. How does that happen? By grace, through faith. Chuck Smith had some very simple explanation for this. I, I loved the simplicity when I heard this once at a pastor's conference. Because people would always ask him, you know, uh, about the dangerous areas, you know, about the controversial areas. And he'd say, yeah, I remember one time he said, you know, this whole thing with the argument about is it free will or is it election? Is it free will or is it predestiny and all of that? He'd say, if you want to know if you're elect, you want to know if you're predestined, choose Christ. You want to know if you're chosen? Choose him. And you can know that. And I firmly believe that in my heart. Again, both of these positions stand up very strongly in the scripture. And there doesn't have to be an argument that comes from either or. That I don't understand it. Because I'll tell you what, folks. When, when I, there are places in God's word that I don't understand. And again, it's, it's settled in my heart. Because I know that I am a finite individual. So are you. We have finite minds. We have a finite ability to understand. And when we get to those places where, like it says in Isaiah, that his thoughts are not my thoughts, his ways are not my ways, they're beyond my finding out. The reason they're beyond my finding out often is because he is speaking in infinite terms. He's the creator of all that is. And yet, in my finite understanding, I, I run into a wall. I just have to say, Lord, there's one word that describes that. And the Bible talks about it over and over again, and that's the word mystery. It's a mystery. I don't understand how both sides of this work. That I don't understand, it doesn't mean that they don't. It's a mystery to understand Jesus as the second person of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. How do three persons exist and there be one God? I don't get it. But that I don't get it doesn't mean it's not true. And so when we look at predestiny, we look at election, we look at free will, we have to realize both are taught, both are true, one falls apart without the other. So, uh, whosoever, Romans 10, 
For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So we see that side of it. We see also in 2 Peter chapter 3, he says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness or slackness, as the King James, but patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. For all, not just the elect. The gospel is offered to all. It's offered to humanity. And so what we're going to look at this morning in this passage, we see that God approaches you, he approaches me, with a call and an offer that's rooted in and it is an expression of his love and that we're chosen. Uh, I backed up one verse. We, we ended in verse 11 last week. We're going to start in verse 11 this week. In verse 11, he says, These things I've spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Rooted in the vine, abiding in the vine, his joy flows to me through the work of the Holy Spirit in me, becomes my joy. It's not subject to the world around me. We talked about joy. Happiness is rooted in circumstances and is communicated to my emotions. Well, good luck with that. You're going to be happy one minute, sad the next. You're going to be tossed around. But joy, far deeper than that, is rooted in the Holy Spirit, communicated to my spirit through abiding in the vine, and that is part of what he has called us to. We are chosen for joy. That's the first thing of these seven that I'm going to look at. He's chosen us to give us joy. The world doesn't get this, folks. That's why people out there are just totally enslaved to all this different stuff. That's why people are looking for answers the, the old song, looking for love in all the wrong places, looking for answers in all the wrong stuff. It's only found in the vine. It's only found in that which he communicates to us by his Holy Spirit, and he gives us life. So we're chosen to have joy. And it's an unspeakable thing that's so deep in our hearts, it's hard to describe, it's hard to define, but I know what joy is. Joy is what I experienced. I think I shared with you guys once. As I was eulogizing my mother at her funeral, I was grieved that my mom died suddenly, without notice. And yet I had a deep and abiding joy as I communicated to those there that I know where she was. And I knew that she had just graduated and she's in heaven. She's walking in the presence of God. What kind of joy that produces. So as we look at the things in our lives, we can either react out of our emotions or we can respond to those things with joy. That's why the Bible says the joy of the Lord is my strength. It's not dependent on circumstances. And these guys were going to need that. Their lives were about to be turned upside down for the rest of their lives. I mean, not like they already hadn't for the last three and a half years. But Jesus knows that in just a couple of hours, a few hours, he's going to be on that cross. And he's preparing these guys. And, he, and preparing them, he's showing them the importance of joy. It's not just a, uh, an add-on. This isn't optional equipment. This is part of the birthright that we have as believers. That his joy could be in us in order that our joy would be full. Because life is tough. And if we don't have something that distinguishes us, sets us apart from the rest 
this thing called joy, then we're going to be tossed around and we're going to be at the effect of every circumstance that comes our way that's not a, a, a great circumstance. So it gives them the ability, guys, the result of joy is stability. He gives us joy because he wants us to be stable members of his family. He wants us to know that it's not all about this life. There's something coming that's far greater. And as I keep my eyes on him and as I allow his spirit to work in me, that joy is there for a purpose. Yes, he wants to bless me. And it's a blessing to have joy in tough things. But it's also what brings stability to our lives that, that we're not tossed here to and fro by every wind of doctrine that comes along. We're not tossed by all the stuff that the world heaps on. So we're chosen for joy. And we need it. Verse 12, this is my commandment, underline commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Have we seen this before? Yeah, this is the third time he's told us this. Does God waste words? Hardly. He knows that we need to love one another. We are chosen for love. Not a love as the world gives. He says, as I have loved you. And that is with a tender affection. That, that he tenderly loved these men and he tenderly loves you. What is he doing here? He's offering intimacy. He's offering intimacy at the, at the depths of your being. You can have an intimacy with God and you can have an intimacy with brothers and sisters in Christ. Because in the same way that we need joy as we go through tough circumstances, we need each other. And if we're, not, if we're not loving one another the way that he loves us, what on earth do we have to offer a dying world? Really? What do we have to offer? What does our life look like? What is our witness shaped by? And, and, you know, when people look in that door and they look at us, I love watching the ladies this morning. It's like, there's love here. I loved yesterday. Yeah, Paul and I were running around with bow ties on and being, we had a blast. Uh, <laughs> rabbit trail. But seriously, it, it, was, it was just so much fun. But to love one another, is that's the glue that binds us together. It, it's his spirit working in us. It's the primary fruit that we've talked about here. Remember, we talked about, we ended last week by saying the fruit is this love that he's calling us to. And if we are fruitless, I really don't have anything substantial that I can offer the world because this is not a worldly love. This isn't a love that I can produce. This is agape. This is the deep, sacrificial love. This is a love that endures trials because I love him. I'm going to go through this. This is a love that is self-denying because I love him. I'm going to deny my own desires because I want him to be glorified in my life. You know, and just a side note here. This is free. <laughs> Pastors go through stuff. We all go through stuff. And some of the stuff I go through, there are times, and, and you know what? I, could, I, I can't count. There are times that I go through some tough stuff. There are times I just want to quit and walk away. And I'm not threatening to do that. Because <laughs> you guys are stuck with me. But you know, there are times it's like, you know, I've got job skills. I don't have to go through this stuff. I could go out and make better money and all this other stuff. And don't think it doesn't come into my mind, but every time 
This is what comes into play. I love you guys. God has given my wife and I just a, just a wonderful, deep love for this body. And we love that we're loved by you. And that binds us together. I want so much for God to be shown in each person's life that the minute those, those thoughts start coming, well, gee, I could go do this, I could go do that. It's like the Lord says, you know what? That's your flesh. What do you do with the flesh? You mortify the deeds. You mo- what does mortify mean? Strangle. I mean, strangle that thought, John. Don't even think about it. You're called to like, not try to love your life. You're called to kind of hate your life and to go with what my agenda is, even though it's hard sometimes. You know, it's kind of like at times like that, it's like the Lord's saying, well, and you know, I don't think he is, but I think about it in terms of it, like, why don't you just call 1-800-WAH, you know? <laughs> <laughs> because that's what it amounts to is my flesh. No, he's called us to love. And that love is an abiding love. It's a sacrificial love. It's a love that says it's, it's about you, not about me. And so I'm called to love. You're called to love too. It's not just me because I'm the pastor. I mean, I was telling somebody yesterday, I like going to church here too. I really do. I love going to church here. And they're like, well, it's kind of weird. You're the pastor. I know, but it's not like I have to. Nobody holds a gun to my head. I love this body. And I love what God has us doing together. And so it's about his love. We are chosen for love. And it's not because we're all that lovable. It's because he is love. He's the embodied. He doesn't, he doesn't define love. He is love. It's not that he gives us love. He gives us his spirit, and his spirit is love. God is love. In 1 John, God is love. And that doesn't mean that we go through everything is all loving and wonderful and rosy and all that. But if you take love out of the equation, what do you have? Loving one another as he loved us. What do you have? You got nothing. You got a bunch of cranky people. And I know you, you're just like me. You got a bunch of cranky people that are trying to work it out on their own instead of submitting themselves, submitting their will, not my will, but your will. Instead of wanting to have my own way, I get up in the morning and say, Lord, you allow me to present myself as a living sacrifice, wholly unacceptable to you, which is my reasonable service, my default position, love called to love. When in 1 John 3.16, John, way late in his life, I mean, he's a really old guy when he writes this, he says, by this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and also ought, we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. You could look at that literally, and there are people that do. Uh, ministry that we're involved in supporting, far-reaching ministries in southern Sudan and Africa, it, they there are 54 of their chaplains uh, that they have sent out have died for the cause of Christ. They, they raise up chaplains corps to go and to reach the indigenous peoples of the region. And because of the, the, the militant onslaught, mostly through Islam, the people are being assassinated. They're being killed all the time. And yeah, those are guys that are laying down their lives, laying down their lives for their friends. We're going to talk about that. Um, he cared for his disciples. And you look at his, his love. There's two things that I look at when I look at the love of Christ. One is the measure of his love. What's the measure of his love? Is there an end to it? No. It's an infinite love. You can't, 
Yeah, you can't get there from here. Uh, there's not a human on earth that could comprehend the love of God. But he's given us enough that we could understand it enough to know that it's immeasurable. And, and, and the other thing is the quality of his love. That agape love, as I mentioned, it's a specific kind of love that by its very nature is self-sacrificing. I love you more than I love me. And that's really one of the keys to success in the Christian life, operating in love. It's a love that sees unity instead of rivalry. It's a love that sees trust instead of, instead of suspicion. It's a love that sees obedience instead of self-assertion. When this doesn't work, you know, when, when you love somebody this way, you're making yourself vulnerable. I'm going to speak to this for a minute. I think it's important. When I love somebody with the kind of love that he's talking about here, I am making myself vulnerable. When I make myself vulnerable, I'm able to express that kind of love. That's when I can be hurt. That's when you can be hurt. And that's what happens. I've mentioned before that this is the most broken command. It's also the most destructive. Families fall apart. Because when you're loving like this, you're trusting. You entrust that person with your heart. And when you're loving like this, you're, you're coming and you're open. And in opening yourself up, you're making yourself vulnerable because love can only be communicated in vulnerability. It can't be communicated over a wall. And so when I let down the walls and I express this love, I'm entrusting you with my heart. How sad it is in the body of Christ, and this is part of why he says, love each other the way I love you, not the way the world does it, because the world attaches, they hang all kinds of conditions on it. But I want to love you with a vulnerability. Jesus is making himself vulnerable to these guys tonight, this night. We'll talk about that as we go. But he's vulnerable to them. And some of them would hurt him. And yet, the quality of this love is so rich that if people are in your circle, if you are making yourself vulnerable, you're loving this way, you really need to honor that. And love them back. Don't betray someone's love. Don't betray someone's vulnerability. I, I know in my life, I could, I could look back at, at relationships uh, that were broken or at things that have happened and, and, and you know, I'm not going to go to the cross again, but I've been to the cross over this. I have been at, at, on my knees before God saying, please forgive me for betraying that quality of love that you've given me. We're chosen for love. Let's walk it out. Let's walk it out by the power of the Holy Spirit, not by reverting to our flesh, not by cheapening it. Verse 13, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. You're my friends if you do whatever I command you. And no longer do I call you servants, for a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. Chosen to be his friend. Think about it. Let that soak in. 
to be a friend of God. That God doesn't say, look, you're my slave, you're my servant, and that's how we're going to relate. No, he elevates this on purpose. This is vulnerability. This is him loving us and setting an example, example for us. Greater love has no man than this. And he laid down his life for his friends. And now I'm calling you friends. I'm not calling you servants anymore. I'm not calling you slaves because a slave has no right to know what his master's heart is. A slave has no right to know what his master's agenda is. But a friend? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's share things. So let's, let's come together. He is leveling the playing field on this, folks. Not with his divine attributes, but with his moral attributes. He's saying, you know what? Come near, friend. Let me give you my heart. Let me show you what's going on. Let me bring you into my circle. He's getting ready to leave, and these guys need to know. And the only way that they can know is by lowering the walls, by not calling them slaves, but considering them friends so he can communicate to them what their mission and what their authority would be going forward on the other side of the cross. But he does that with us. He has chosen us to be friends of God. A doulos, a slave, as a servant of God, was not a title of shame. It was a title of the highest honor. Moses was a doulos of God. We see that in Deuteronomy 34. Joshua, the same in Joshua 24. David in Psalm 89. Paul counted it an honor to use. It, very often, Paul, a bondservant of Christ, uh, is very often how he opened his letters. James uses that term as well in James chapter 1. I'm going to read something here. Jesus says, I have something greater for you than servanthood. It was an honor for these guys, and Paul uses that term advisedly because he is, and we are to be willful slaves of our master. And, and I'm not discounting that at all. But here, when he's talking about being chosen to be a friend of God, that elevation is, is worth stopping and taking a look at. He says uh, <clears throat> that, that you're no longer slaves. You're my friends. He's offering them an intimacy uh, which up until this point had never been known. It had never been known. Nobody had ever considered themselves, other than Abraham, way back when, he was called a friend of God. But in Jesus' culture, they didn't call themselves friends of God. God was to be revered. He was higher. He they looked at him through the eyes of, of, of his being over all. So here, this phrase would also be understood through a, a custom. When Abraham was a friend of God, which was seen both in Jesus' day in the courts of Roman emperors and Eastern kings, they had a term it was for a very select few in their courts. They were called friends of the king or friends of the emperor. These are the guys that had full access to the king. These are the guys that could come anytime. They could even go into the king's bedchamber and have access to him because they were his closest confidants and counselors. And so these guys would understand that as Jesus is speaking these terms, he is bringing them in as the king to his closest circle. 
And he's saying, I've chosen you to be friends. Uh, when he talked to them, he would talk to them, bef- when the king would talk to his, the friends of the king, he talked to them before he talked to the, the rulers or generals or anybody else. Again, sort of like you, you see that there are people that are counselors to the president. There are people in the closest circle that he has. And that's what Jesus is doing here with his disciples. And it's what he does with us when he calls us to be friends. He elevates the relationship. Charles Spurgeon has something interesting to say. He said, it must be act of obedience. When he's saying, you're my friends if you do whatever I command you to do. He does put a condition on that, folks. Some think it's quite sufficient uh, if they avoid what he forbids. Spurgeon says, abstinence from evil is a great part of righteousness, but it is not enough for friendship. I like that. To just, to, to reduce God, to reduce my relationship with Christ down to a list of do's and don'ts really does a disservice to him because it kind of guts the relationship. The relationship is, you know, if you love me, you're going to want to do these things. Your, your life will shine with obedience. It's not obedience that gets you there, but it's obedience that shows you're there. Does that make sense? That my obedience is it's a response to his grace, which is poured out in my life. It's never uh, a means towards it, because it, Paul says in Ephesians 2, we're saved by grace through faith, not as a result of worse or things that we do, but that because of him, because of who he is. And so I want to live a life that is marked by obedience, not blind obedience, like a dog getting a treat when he does a trick. That's silliness. But obedience that is compelled by love, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. There's no question about it. It's really a mark of the love that you have. Not a means towards, but proof of. Okay, got to understand that. So verse 15, he says, No longer do I call you servants, for a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends for all things that I heard from my father, I've made known to you. We're chosen, folks. He says, all things that I've made, that I've uh, have heard from my father, I made known to you. I am giving you the privilege of being on the inside circle of these things. He says, and essentially, we're chosen for privilege and partnership with God, to be his partners in this thing that we're doing on this side of the cross. As we now, as the redeemed, we don't just go out there and live our lives to ourselves. That's not his will. A slave could never be a partner. He was defined in Greek law as a living tool. Interesting. These guys are not just living tools. They are partners. And his master never opened his mind to him. A slave simply had to do what he was told without reason and without explanation. But Jesus said, you're not my slaves. You're my partners. I've told you everything. I've told you what I'm trying to do. I've told you what I, why I'm trying to do it. And I've told you everything which the Father has told me. He's given these guys the honor, the privilege of making partners with them. And he makes partners with us. Have you ever thought about it in those terms? The tremendous choice laid before us is that we can accept or refuse partnership with Christ in the work of leading the world to God. That's why it's called the Great Commission. It's the Great Co-Mission. Co, 
the, the, between us. Mission. Uh, verse 16, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain that whatever you ask the Father in my name that he may give you. So we're chosen to be ambassadors. He says, I chose you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. It's by divine appointment. When we look at this concept of being chosen, he has chosen us for a purpose. Yes, to be friends. Yes, to love. Yes, to have joy. But there's work to do. And so I've chosen you to be an ambassador. And an ambassador is somebody that doesn't go and represent his own will, his own agenda, to those to whom he's sent. He represents the master's agenda. He represents the king or the kingdom's agenda. And so chosen to go and bear fruit, what does that fruit look like? Simply representing him to a dying world. Chosen. Chosen to be an ambassador of Christ. What a privilege. It's also chosen us to advertise. I laughed this morning when Donna was saying, I advertise. <laughs> I'm going, yes, you do. <laughs> and, and yet, he has chosen us to be advertisements in that sense. And I don't want to cheapen it. This isn't like, I don't know if you guys remember, uh, oh, what was his name? Cal Worthington. You ever see Cal Worthington? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, with his white socks and polyester leisure suit and all that stuff. Yeah, selling cars, hawking the wares. That's not what I mean when I say advertisements. But he says, you, you don't light a lamp and hide it under a bushel. You put it out there for everybody to see. You, you can't take a city that's set on a hill. You're going to see it. It's going to be visible. What he's saying is you will be visible. Your link to me is going to be visible in the eyes of the world. You will, in that sense, advertise the kingdom to them. We, of all people, I, I've mentioned it before. I will mention it forever. We have answers to the things that are going on out there. I, we have answers to the, the things that enslave men and women. We have answers. Christ is the answer to those things. He will give power through abiding in the vine to resist those things. We don't have to live our lives in a sewer. We don't have to live our lives enslaved to various lusts. We don't have to live our lives out there in the world thinking that just because we're a good person, we're going to heaven. We, had, we truly, folks, have the answers to the things that are going on in this world. They're not our answers. They're his. And all we do is advertise them to a, a messed up world. So we're, we're called, we're chosen to advertise. He chose us to go out and bear fruit and to bear fruit which will stand the test of time. The way to spread Christianity is to be a Christian. Pure and simple. How's that look in your life? What's the shape of that? What's your testimony look like? Does it need some polishing? Allow him to polish. It's that simple. Co cooperate with the work of his spirit. There are times where we allow our testimony to get tarnished. We're human. We mess up. We, we get, you know, we have attitudes. The Lord, the Holy Spirit is always wanting to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And we'll get to that in chapter 16. But here, what does it look like? Um, the way to do Christianity 
is verse 17. These things I command you. He says it again. Love one another. Love one another. Put the personal insult aside. Let it go. Don't get all whiny because somebody said you didn't look right or somebody you know, had something to say that didn't sit right. Let it go. Let it go. Truly, have grace. We get along well when we have grace for one another, when we have grace for the people that we're dealing with. What is grace? It's unmerited favor. I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. Sometimes it feels like that, huh? But our lives work well when they're oiled by grace. It really does smooth things out. You want to have successful relationships? Let them be marked by grace. The grace that he has for us. That's the love he's talking about. It's not just warm fuzzies, guys. It's tangible. It's durable stuff. Have grace. This is the greatest proof, the fruit of being a Christian. The fruit of his spirit. Love. Chosen to love. Love for one another. Love for the lost. And love for the unlovable. Person come into your mind when I say love for the unlovable? I've got a few. Yeah, that's the real test. It's easy to love lovable people. It's easy to, oh, that person just makes me feel good. I just want to be around them and all that. But that person that grates on you, that person that maybe there's a personality conflict you can't even nail down. That's where the rubber meets the road. When you're loving people the way that Jesus loves us, because I'll, be, I'll guarantee you, he doesn't love us. You, I look at myself in my finest and I think, you love me? He says, yeah, I love you. Because we're all unlovable at times. That measure that you use for others, be careful you don't want that measure being used on you. That's what Jesus says, not my opinion. So to recap, first thing here, chosen for joy. A joy unspeakable. Chosen for joy. Chosen to have this deep abiding sense that it's all going to work out. Chosen to have this deep abiding sense that even when, man, things are stacked up around me, fires are burning all over in my life, I've got peace. I've got joy. It's a primary fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's not something you can produce. You're not going to be able to push hard enough to pop joy out. But he offers it. He chooses you for joy. Chosen for love. The mark of the covenant the language of heaven, love. So important that we walk this out. And our lives are just enriched when we do. Why do we struggle against it? Because I want my own way and you really offended me and all that other stuff. And you know, we get all caught up in this stuff. It's like, stop, just stop. Let it all drop. Have grace, love, chosen for love. I am chosen by God to extend love. And I also receive love. I looked at that yesterday with the women's retreat. I saw love going back and forth with all these different ladies. And I was just blessed. 
I, it was, you know, Paul and I being the only guys there, and when they were in one room, we were in the other room and doing stuff and going back and forth. And, and, and it was just so neat to get these little vignettes of what was going on with the women and praying the whole time, you know, and, and just, Lord, just, just reach these ladies where they're at. And to see the love manifest was so wonderful. Chosen to be his friend. When was, that, when was the last time you maybe looked in the mirror and said out loud, I'm not saying you need to do this, but I am a friend of God, of the creator of all that is, of the one that went to that cross for me, of the one that rose from the dead to give me power in my life. I'm his friend. I'm not just a servant. Yes, I'm a servant of God, but I'm his friend. Why? Because he's restoring that which was lost back in the garden when Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day and they had fellowship with him. He's restoring that. We actually enjoy fellowship with God. Why? Because he's our friend. Because he wants intimacy with us. That's why our prayer lives are not just one directional. I want to wait on him in prayer and allow him to communicate those things to me. Chosen for love. Chosen to be his friend. Chosen for privilege and partnership. Have you thought about it? How privileged is it that you, that me, that we would actually contain, our bodies would be the vessel, the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. That is a privilege that could have no price tag. It is a privilege that is entrusted to us as the very temple of God. Privileged. Partners with him in the Great Commission, in, in spreading the news that salvation is near. All you have to do is by faith reach out and take it. Chosen to advertise. Chosen to be a light. You know, Israel was the light of God. That's what the Bible says. The Old Testament, Israel was the light. And, and we've talked about that, where he, he took that away. He said, you're done. And now I, as the light, I am the light of the world. And we could do a whole study on that because that's part of what he revoked. Doesn't mean he's finished with her, but he took that, put it upon himself, not on the church. But now through him that we have the ability to be a light to others. Chosen to advertise. Finally, and it's something that's not specifically called out here, except for when we looked at, at Peter, uh, chosen to bear the family name. Christian. It's not just a title for a group of people. If you're a Christian this morning, you bear his name. Every bit as much as your surname, your last name, is the one that you have for life, hopefully. But every bit as much as you have a physical, tangible name, you bear his name. The name above every name. He says, I am sharing that with you. You're chosen to bear my name. How awesome is that? So what does it look like? 
Verse 16, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask in my name, he may give you. A word on prayer as we close. What he's talking about is prayer. Whatever you ask. He's mentioned this several times too. Whatever you ask in my name. And it's not a, a trick question. It's not some weird deal. Uh, it's that he simply has parameters through which we pray. The first is our prayers need to be a prayer of faith. Uh, something I came across. There's little use in a man praying to be changed if he does not believe it possible that he can be changed. You believe this stuff? Does it shape your life? Praying in his name means that we're praying according to his character, his nature, and his purposes. It's not, it's not through bending God's will to mine. His will be done. That's the next thing. In prayer, we're always praying in an attitude of, Lord, your will, not my will, but your will be done. We've talked about that at length when we looked at prayer a few weeks back or a couple months now, I guess. And, and, and looking at, it's not about coming to God and saying, oh, please, 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 God, do it this way, do it that way. And bending his will. But it's, it's always with, Lord, not my will, your will be done. I may not see the end of the thing. He does. Trust that. Prayer of faith is never selfish. Ask anything in my name. It, don't take these passages with some crude literalism. Well, he said, if I ask anything in my name, in his name, I'll say, okay, so in Jesus' name, I am commanding this thing. No. No, it's not crude literalism. It's simply understanding that, again, it's his ball, his ball game. He makes the rules, and I get to follow them. Ask in his name means you're, you're, you're persistent in prayer, but you're not trying to bend him to you. You're acknowledging that he is the one who is over all and that you can trust that he's going to answer that prayer. If, I, if, I'm, praying, if I'm praying for sunshine because we're going to have a picnic and, and a farmer across town is praying for rain because his crops are dry, who's praying the right prayer? Big picture, guys. When we pray, acknowledge that he knows best. And, and as we look at what it is to be chosen of God, my prayer is that you walk out of here with a confidence that comes from knowing that you're not only chosen, you're his friend. You're not only his friend, but you're his ambassador. That you represent him to a really messed up world, and it's getting more messed up every day. And we can have confidence. We can go forward knowing that we are in him, that we are chosen to be in him. Again, in the greater context of this passage, he's the vine, I'm the branch. When I'm plugged in, when I'm abiding in him, his energy, his power is flowing to me and I'm understanding these things, perhaps with a depth that I've never known. Praise God if that's the case. Allow him to work in you. Allow him to have his way with you. Have grace in your dealings with other people because that's loving one another the way he loves us. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for this look in John 15 about what it is to be chosen and to the degree 
in which you have chosen us in so many ways. Lord, I pray, pour out your spirit on each of us this day. Give us a fresh empowering, a fresh understanding. Let us not leave here without doing business with you. If you put your finger on something in each of our hearts, I pray now, Father, that we would simply do business with you and that through our prayers, we would have greater understanding of what you have called us to and greater understanding of who you are as you come to us intimately and pour out your spirit, pour out your life into ours. It gives us meaning and depth. So I commit myself afresh to you, Lord. I, I commit each of these to you, to your care, and pray that you would work, that you'd bring to our understanding of the things we've looked at this morning, that our lives would be transformed by that power that you wield in us. Thank you, in Jesus' name. Amen.